We love summertime around here in the Capital District. All two weeks of it. We just love it. It's wonderful and amazing because it is so quickly over. Now, I got to tell you, fall is really my favorite time of year, so I'm actually getting stoked because summer's kind of coming to an end. Some of you groan at that, but I'm really excited that some cooler weather is on the way. We're in a series called Better Disciples. I'm going to ask you today to find in your Bible, on your portable device, uh, you can also watch on the screens, this section from 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Paul writes to Timothy and says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We're going to stop right there today and unpack a few of those verses in just a few moments. Roger Bannister had been favored to win in the 1952 Olympics. But he had dis, dis, finished a disappointing fourth place and thought about giving up running altogether to devote his full time to medical studies. But you see, in his day, there was something that deep in his soul he wanted to do because no one had ever run a mile in under four minutes. And even though thousands of dedicated runners had tried, that mark proved impossible to crack time and time again. Many thought it would never be done. Doctors, medical doctors, were actually writing articles in journals saying the human body simply wasn't meant to be pushed that hard. This mark should not be tried and it will never be cracked. But see, Bannister believed differently. He believed in his heart that it could be done. But although, as I said, he'd been favored to win in the Olympic Games in 52, it had been such a disappointment. He thought about just giving up on that dream. But he had a coach who believed in him and expressed the belief that if he gave it his all, a robust commitment, he could be the first man ever to break four minutes in the mile. He decided he would make that his singular goal for this season of his life. Studying in medicine eight hours a day and training physically four hours daily 
left him little time for anything else. But Bannister continued to train, grueling conditioning of the body, day after day, week after week, month after endless month, getting himself ready for peak performance. And finally, the day came for him to try his impossible dream. The day broke cold and windy. The track was wet from five hours of rain earlier that morning. Certainly not ideal conditions. But Roger had resolved, today's the day. The runners went to their marks. The guns sounded, and they were off. The first quarter was run in 57 and a half seconds. The half mile in one minute, 58.2 seconds. Now, that was a very fast, even blistering pace for those days, and it continued throughout the third lap until with only one lap remaining, the time read three minutes, one half second. Down the back stretch, around the curve, sprinting for home. Later, in describing that moment, on the last lap, Bannister said, my head was throbbing, my lungs felt they would burst. For a brief moment, I thought, maybe I should slow up and just come in to win. He was far ahead. He could have backed off the pace and still won the race. He didn't want to win the race. He wanted to break the record. And bearing the tremendous pain and giving it everything he had, he continued to sprint toward the finish line. He hit the tape. Clocks weren't quite as split-second fast as they are today. But in just a moment or two, the time flashed on the board Three minutes, that's what everybody was looking for. Three minutes, 59.4 seconds. Pandemonium. The crowd exploded with exuberance because they just witnessed history. And many tried to flow down onto the track to congratulate and welcome their new sports hero, Roger Bannister, who had broken the impossible barrier and done something many thought would never, ever be done. He was the toast of the sports world. But what? few people in the stands that day realized was that just a few years earlier, Roger Bannister had been a somewhat pudgy little boy that very few people saw any athletic promise in. Growing up in the system in the UK, the schools were graded a bit differently. But if he had been in the US, it would have been what we call his junior high school years. He had a coach who said, son, and I quote, You'll never make it in track and field. <laughs> you ought to find another sport. What, what it seems no one could see in Bannister was that in this young man's heart was a burning desire to do something that no one in the world had ever done before. And he was willing not just to dream it and think it. He was willing to work it. He was willing to act on that belief. And the impossible became true. 
Now, we're in a series called Better Disciples. As I hope you know, especially if you're a regular part of Grace, our mission, and man, we're maniacal about it. We get weird-looking eyes sometimes when we talk about this mission. We better watch out. We're a little crazy when we talk about this. Our mission is to glorify God by making more and better disciples. And this month of August, we're focusing on that better part, and we're using Timothy and Paul as kind of a case study of discipleship. Here's what we've learned so far. We've learned that grandparents and parents can make a huge difference. The gospel seeds you sow in your kids' lives, when you sow in faith, expecting a harvest, can bring forth amazing results. Yeah, your kids still have a free will, that's for sure. But you sow expectantly, and God can do some amazing things. God bless you, parents, grandparents, for the role that you play. We've also learned that when Timothy came into the faith, he did so without any illusions of what being a disciple meant. Remember that? Acts 14, Paul comes to Lystra, where Timothy's living, growing up. And literally, the apostle Paul is left for dead, bleeding in his own pool of blood outside the city because of his preaching of the gospel. So he comes back. Timothy sees this. And Timothy knows one thing for sure, being a disciple ain't easy. So he starts with no illusions. He knows it's hard. But you see, as we learned last weekend, the problem is this. Timothy, by his constitution and nature, isn't a superstar, superstar disciple. And that's why I like him so much, because, you see, I and many of you are like him. We're a little bit weak in some areas. We're not naturally courageous. And so Paul's trying to stoke him up here in this letter. He's saying, look, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-discipline. So don't be ashamed, Timothy, to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. And he even pulls up the name of Onesiphorus. He says, he wasn't ashamed, so Timothy, don't you be ashamed. And these are all the things we're learning here. In short, Paul is setting the bar high. And just so you know, kind of a little pet peeve of mine, don't we all have little soap boxes we love to get on at times? Do you have a soap box? Do you have something that people just kind of punch the right buttons with you, if they just say a certain thing, if, if you get half a stinking chance, you'll hop up on your soapbox and give people an earful. Well, this is one of my soapbox issues. I just believe Christianity in America has become pretty wimpy. It's a soapbox issue for me. I just believe there's a whole lot of people saying, I'm a person of faith, or even I'm a Christian, but they honestly, honestly, not being mean-spirited in saying this, not, not trying to be, you know, angry, or they just honestly don't have a clue what that means. And so Jesus gets a black eye because it's not really representative of what he's looking for. 
So last week, we saw that in setting the bar high, Paul said, Timothy, you be like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And as I told you, I think he had a lump in his throat and a knot in his stomach because soldiers are tough. We got a lot of soldiers or former soldiers in our church, men and women who've served in the military. They are trained to push, push, push to the limit of hardship and endurance and keep on going, man. I, I think Timothy thought, man, I can't do that. But Paul reminded him, through the risen Christ and his power, you can do that. But today, we're going to see that he changes the metaphor a bit. In verse 5, notice he said, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete. Now, if being a soldier, a good soldier, put a lump in Timothy's throat, no doubt being an elite athlete was the same kind of challenge. Because being an elite athlete, as many of you know, and some of you have been athletes that that have reached amazing success in your sport, it requires not just a week of commitment, not a month or a year, it requires years of mental and physical toughness, training and preparation. So when Paul wrote this, said, be like an athlete, I think he was thinking of the Greek games. They got started in ancient, in the ancient Greek empire, and today they've become known as the Olympic Games. But first, they didn't bear that name, they were just the Greek games. And he says, Timothy, you need to understand that if you're going to be a true disciple, an effective disciple of Jesus, you must adopt discipline like that of an athlete. By the way, scholars say that an athlete who was going to compete in the Olympic Games not only had to be obviously awesome already, but they had to submit themselves to 10 months of the most unbelievable training before they would be allowed to compete in the Games. You sure just couldn't show up. It was an incredibly high commitment. So as we explore this today, I want to highlight two things about an athlete that are uber relevant to us as disciples of Jesus, and then we're going to wrap up by looking at another metaphor that Paul introduces that is also incredibly relevant to a disciple. So here we go. You're taking notes, and of course, all the godly people are. (laughs) You might jot some ideas on the back of your bulletin. A disciple lives first according to the rules. Verse 5, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. Now, everyone knows that sports would be meaningless if there were no rules, right? Think of basketball. Okay, you need to shoot the free throw from 15 feet back. Well, no, I want to shoot it from 4 feet back. Well, that's not the rule. No, but that's what I want to do. Well, this is the boundary over here. Well, no, I want this to be the boundary. It would be ridiculous after a while. No one would want to even play the game unless the rules were clear and set forth. Now, when Paul mentions rules here, he's not promoting a sort of legalism that suggests we become acceptable to God by our careful rule-keeping. 
Please understand today. He's not saying, Timothy, now listen, listen up, Timothy. You want to go to heaven one day? You need to be a good boy now. Timothy, going to heaven, you need to be a rule keeper because you got to be good enough now for God to accept you. So keep all the rules. I hope you know that that's antithetical to what Christianity teaches. Read Romans, Ephesians, read the book of Titus, and you will find this message consistently in Galatians as well, that we are saved not by deeds that we perform, but by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ as we place our faith in his finished work on the cross. That's how we're saved. That's what Christianity is all about. But if you stop the average person out there in the capital district, they don't have a clue. Try it if you don't believe it. Stop about 20 people this week and say, hey, can you explain to me, just doing a little survey here is all. No right or wrong answers here that I'm looking for. Just tell me your opinion. What does Christianity teach about how a person goes to heaven? I'll guarantee you at least 19 out of 20 will give this basic answer. Well, it says if you're going to go to heaven, you need to be a really good person. You got to earn it. You got to be really, really good. And then you, you might make it to heaven. You know, if, you're, if your good deeds kind of outweigh your bad deeds, then you, you can go to heaven. Garbage. Antithetical to what Scripture teaches. The Bible does not teach that good people go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And those are usually the people who've recognized whatever good traits or tendencies I might have, I realize that even my best is like filthy rags in the sight of God. That's who goes to heaven. And you repent of your sin and you entrust your life to the grace of God. And you look to him and him alone as your savior. That's who goes to heaven. But then you live the rest of your life out of gratitude for what he's done for you. You want to live the life. And trust me, just like every elite athlete lives by a code of discipline and competes according to the rules of the game, so every disciple, brothers and sisters, every disciple lives according to the code God has given us in his word. Verse 2 that we looked at earlier said, And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men and women who will also be able to qualify to teach others. What does that mean? What are you really passing on here? The things you've heard me say. What he's talking about there, first, is certain beliefs, apostolic doctrine that you've heard from me. Timothy, you remember how I taught you that Jesus was born of a virgin? It had been prophesied by the prophets for centuries. And he lived a sinless life. And he died on the cross as a substitution for our sins. And that he was buried and that he rose again bodily, not just in the hearts of the believers now, not just in their hopes and hearts. He rose bodily from the grave and he ascended to God the Father Almighty and he's coming back one day to receive us to ourselves and we need to receive him by grace. Do you remember all that, Timothy? 
that's what you need to pass on. And you can't change it. You can't go changing parts of that. I need for you to guard it and pass it on. But it's not just beliefs. It's also a code of behaviors that you pass on. Because the Bible also tells us how we're supposed to live. What I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, is being a Christian means you can't just live any way you please. We can't just make it up. It is what it is. We can only live the Christian life according to the word of God. That's why he told him in chapter 1, verse 14, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. That's a reference to the gospel. All those things I just named. It's a reference to this amazing, life-changing message we call the gospel. What you've heard from me, hey, pass it on. Pass it on. You say, well, Pastor, you said we can't just make it up. Well, what about denominations? Why do Christians believe different things? That's a good question. And those of you who didn't grow up in the church or haven't been around Christianity, denominations, we mean you might have heard of Presbyterians or Baptists or Methodists or Lutherans or Episcopalians. You know, you might have heard of Nazarenes and Christian and Missionary Alliance or Free Methodist or Church of God or Pentecostals or Church of God in Christ. And there were 64 different denominations right here in the Capital District just a few years ago. Denominations. Can I tell you something? Denominations are conviction clusters. That's what I want you to know. Denominations are simply conviction clusters. On things that are kind of secondary issues, we tend to cluster around the way we see those. Presbyterians are Presbyterians because they follow a certain church polity, and they're defined usually by the theology of John Calvin and how he taught the Bible. Christian and Missionary Alliance people are those who are committed to foreign missions, a movement started in the late 1800s by A.B. Simpson. So there's a distinctiveness about it. Methodists are a group of people who got dubbed as Methodists because of their passion for being methodological about their discipleship methods. That's how they got that name. Baptists are called Baptists because of their distinctive view of baptism. They believe in believer's baptism only, and they believe it needs to be by immersion, full immersion in water. Episcopalians are called that because of their view of the Episcopal oversight of their leaders. And I could go on and on and on. They're conviction clusters. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with denominations. Trust me, we're going to have them until Jesus comes back. And then he'll go, come back and show us that we've all been wrong all along, okay? That's what we're going to learn. But you can't just make up your own version of the Christian life. What I mean is, you can't just say, Lord, I'd like uh, some joy and some peace. And yeah, can you throw in that fire insurance? That's a biggie for me. Throw that in, and I'd like some forgiveness of all the yucky things I've done. Oh, but... Okay, yeah, you want me to care about the poor and be compassionate. Uh, you know what? That's a little inconvenient. So I think I'll pass on that. That's the way we approach discipleship in the modern world. It's a smorgasbord. It's a pick and choose thing. You want a little of this, you don't want that, cool, everything's great. What I'm saying is there are some foundational beliefs and behaviors. Hear this now. 
foundational beliefs and behaviors that you can't just pick and choose from. They are the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, and they are not up for grabs. That's what we're to live by. That's what we're to pass on. That's what he means by living according to the rules. One of the most dramatic Olympic moments I can ever remember was in 1988 in the Seoul Olympics. It was the men's final in the 100-meter dash. And it was won by Ben Johnson of Canada. I have never seen anyone run so fast in my life. It was mind-blowing. And for three days, Ben Johnson was the toast of the athletic world. In fact, one newspaper coined the phrase, Bentastic. And it just went global at that time. Bentastic, a new word for him. The fastest man in the world. But three days later, it was discovered that he had taken illegal performance-enhancing drugs. And he was disqualified. His gold medal stripped from him. And the award was given to Carl Lewis, who had been the runner-up. And Ben Johnson learned a painful lesson. If you do not compete according to the rules, you're wasting your time. The work of God must always submit to the word of God. And so, brothers and sisters, that's why I would say to you, the most important thing you could ever do in my mind is get in some relational situation, small group with a handful of people, or a triad with like three of you together, or even one-on-one, and read Scripture. And talk about what it means and apply it to your lives. There's nothing more catalytic than that. If there's one thing I could get you to do as a disciple, that would be it. Because the work of God is always subject to the word of God. And if we don't know the word of God, we're just out there like sheep without a shepherd. There's a second thing, and I'm reading into this just a little bit. I will acknowledge up front and taking a little bit of liberty But I think I'll bring it back to 2 Timothy in just a moment. And that is that a disciple works in partnership. In other words, we do not run alone. This is not a solo exercise. Even if you're in a sport that where you're a singular performer, you still have a team of trainers and doctors and coaches and so forth. So it's always a team that you're partnering with. In Hebrews 1, 12, verse 1, The writer says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If you read that in context, of course, it's talking about that whole list of great women and men of faith who have already run their race, who have gone before us, and are now in the celestial grandstand, as it were, cheering us on. I find that to be very inspirational. And if you choose to read 2 Timothy carefully, you'll read a whole list of names that were partners with Paul in ministry. You're going to read names like Crescens and Titus and Luke and Mark and Tychicus and Carpus and Priscilla and Aquila and Pudens and Linus and Claudia. And then he just says, and all the brothers 
There's a whole bunch of people that are going in the same direction I'm going, Timothy. We're one big community, one big family, one big team. You do not live the Christian life alone. Are you a disciple of Jesus? If you are, you desperately need Christian community. The real deal, the authentic thing. You desperately need some other people with you. It's not a solo sport. I want you to watch a clip now. It's a little bit less than three minutes. I find it very inspirational. It stoked me up the first time I saw it in real life. Happened in real time. uh, Or it probably delayed a little bit. It was in the Barcelona Olympics 1992 where Derek Redman is running the 400-meter race and pulls up with an injury. And his father comes down onto the track to come alongside of him. Let's watch this clip together. Tom Hammond and Craig Massback back at Olympic Stadium in Barcelona coming up to the men's 400-meter semifinals. Here are the lane assignments. Steve Lewis in lane three. Top four to Wednesday's final. Steve Lewis in lane three. Roberto Hernandez out quickly in four. Now down the back stretch. Ismael on the left of the screen is running very, very quickly. And inside of Lewis, Sunday Bada, Nigeria. And Derek Redman of Great Britain has pulled up with an injury. Redman is out. Derek Redmond, the British record holder and an important member of that British 4x400-meter relay team as he doesn't want anybody to help him. It'll be Lewis to win in 44.50. Look at this. He's going to try to finish his semifinal race. The British have a certain tradition of running which you have to respect a bizarre finish to this first semi-final of the men's 400 meters Derek Redmond of Great Britain pulled up with an injury halfway down the back stretch he's fighting off those trying to help him to finish the race in his lane And now the pain too much. Stadium as Redman, with assistance this time, approaches the finish line he had wanted so desperately to reach. That is the Olympic spirit. The man who came 
along his side was obviously his father who broke through the barriers, literally broke the rules in order to be there beside his son who was hurting so badly. You may not pull a hamstring, but your heart's going to get broken. You may not blow out an Achilles tendon, <laughs> but your finances may be in trouble someday. You may not trip and sprain an ankle, but trust me, you're going to have some relational pain in your life. And my question to you is simply this. Do you have a band of brothers and sisters? Now, your father is always going to be there. But do you have a band of brothers and sisters with skin on that can be there with you in your time of pain? Well, as we wrap up today, Paul moves to a third metaphor that I find incredibly inspirational. He said a disciple lives according to the rules. He said a disciple works in partnership. And third here, and I want you to write this one down because it's not in your notes. I added this one later. A disciple sows good seeds expecting a harvest. Sows good seeds expecting a harvest. Notice verse 6. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Now, obviously, Paul is changing metaphors from being a good soldier to being an elite athlete. And now he says, be like a hardworking farmer. Now, here's something I know about. I grew up on a farm. I grew up literally farming. I saw it up close and personal. There are two big things that a farmer needs. Would you write these words down, please? Humor me. Write them down, please. Patience and perseverance. Would you write those words down? Patience and perseverance. That's what an effective farmer needs. Now, I don't know how much Paul knew personally about farming, but I do know he must have been exposed to it somewhere because he uses a number of farming metaphors and illusions in his writing. For instance, one of the most famous is Galatians 6, where he says a man reaps what he sows. That's one of the basic principles of arable farming. If you want a good harvest, you better plant some good seeds into some soil that can produce. And he says in verse 9 of Galatians 6, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Farmers have to be patient, and they have to persevere. Folks, farmers do a lot of waiting. Now, they don't do nothing while they wait. They do other work. They take care of other things, but they sow, they fertilize the ground, they water the ground unless the weather does it naturally for them. And farmers are always working and waiting, working and waiting. It takes time for the seed to sprout and grow to maturity. You have to wait for the harvest. The same is true in the life of a disciple. Genuine character building and maturity takes time. Now, my sense is that some of you are a bit discouraged 
you've been on this Christian journey now for long enough, you know it's not easy. You get up every day and you try to be dependent on God and turn your life all over to Him again, as you should. But your life is a drag. At least it feels that way. Your job is a drain. And many of you are trying to parent and you go, wow, is there anything harder in the world than parenting? Being a good parent. I'm here to tell you today that yes, life is hard. But if you keep sowing good seed and you keep watering and you keep cultivating, you're going to reap a harvest in God's time. One of the prize exhibits of the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, Egypt, is some of the contents of a tomb of Tutankhamun, who was a pharaoh who died about roughly 3,500 years ago. He was only 18 when he died. He had only served as pharaoh for a short amount of time, and he was buried elaborately, of course, as was their custom. You know, they thought that you needed to take things with you in the afterlife, so they put horses and chariots in the tomb with Tutankhamun. And they even put soldiers in there. And they put all kinds of clothing and implements that he could use, they believed, in the next life. And then, strangely, they also put barrels and barrels of seeds. And the seeds had actually been not only washed, but it looked like they had each been polished and then placed in a barrel and sealed up for 3,500 years. And so when archaeologists discovered this tomb in the 1920s, and they saw all these thousands of seeds, you know what was on everybody's mind. I wonder if these seeds would grow. And they planted some of them, and everyone waited patiently. Will they grow? Will they grow? And sure enough, even though they were literally buried there for thousands of years in a barrel, those seeds germinated and grew. I'll tell you, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, I've got good news for you today. Like a hardworking farmer, if you plant the seeds of God's word in the good soil of an obedient heart, and if you apply some patience and perseverance and don't give up, you are going to reap a big old harvest one of these days. And your heart will brim with gratitude for God's amazing grace. Father, thank you that you've set the bar high and that you didn't call us to be little Christianettes, little half-hearted people who just sort of believe and sort of commit. You've called us to a robust commitment, like a good soldier, like an elite athlete, and like a faithful, patient farmer. As we continue to sow good seeds in soil of obedience, may you, Lord, by your grace, bring home an abundant harvest. This is our prayer, and we pray it with expectancy in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Rex. At this time, I would love to invite the ushers to come forward to receive our tithes and offerings. Powerful message, a challenging message. What does it mean to become a better 
disciple? What does it take? What does it require of us to grow in being more like our